Welcome to the OA Light a, Me- Light a Candle Meeting podcast. Visit our website at oalaig.org where you will find several speaker feeds with over 400 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Corinne. Hi, my name is Corinne. And can you hear me? Is that okay? Yeah. yeah. Um, my name is Corinne. I'm a compulsive overeater recovering bulimic. Hi. It's good to be here. Um, always good to be at a meeting, any 12-step meeting. Um, I have no, no idea what I'm going to say. So I'm just going to turn it over and ask God to just speak to me. Um, I guess what I'll share on is what I heard you say, which is... I'm going to share my experience, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. Okay, what it was like was really bad, and now it's a lot better. (laughs) No, it was really bad. Um, Let's see, where do I start? Uh, Yeah, I think the, the first thing that I use to check out or numb out to not feel. Because this is how it was. I was always in uncomfortable in here, inside my body. I felt really uh, anxious, and I felt really scared, and I felt really alone, and I felt um, not even scared. You know what? That's not true. I felt, I felt terror. I felt terror, yeah. And... Um, I didn't grow up in an alcoholic family. I do have an older brother that died of a heroin overdose, though. Um, there's no real alcoholism in my family. And uh, my first thing I think I used to check out was um, control. So I would control my things. Like, if, if this is um, in my room, I would, like, all my stuffed animals. This was, like, maybe when I was, like, seven. All my stuffed animals and dolls would all be lined up, and they would all be, like, you know, if it, all perfect, and it's like if, it, if anyone came in my room and it was like crooked, I'd have to straighten it. And for some reason, that gave me um, gave me like this safe feeling. It was like an illusion of control. Like I, if I, as long as I can control my environment, then I'm safe because I didn't grow up feeling safe. There's a lot of chaos in my family. Um, my mom divorced my dad, like, in 1963, and women just weren't divorcing back in 63 and raising my brother and I on our own. And, um, so yeah, there was just a lot of, lot of rage, a lot of craziness, um, and not feeling safe. And so that control thing I would do would help me feel um, a little bit more... <sighs> Okay, all right. It would make me feel a little more calm and at peace. Um, even though later in life I learned that's just an illusion, you know. And when I was about, um, I think about 11 or 12, um, I had a best friend, and everything she did, I wanted to do. So she went into uh, gymnastics, and I followed her in there. 
and I pursued that sport. I was state champion in the 70s for California, and then I competed like regional, nationals, and it was heavy duty intense. Um, and I remember um, I still have, and that, that was another form for me to control, because you just get to control your body. You know, <laughs> it's like everything has to be exact, and um, and it helped me not to um, feel. Because if I'm on a balance beam four inches wide, all I to, all I do is focus on that beam. I can't like be distracted like a horse with blinders on. It. And so that was like I think probably my second escape. Um, and while I was doing gymnastics, I did not really have issues with food. I know there were some women on the team where the coach started weighing them, and if they were a little bit overweight, uh, he would say, "You guys can't compete in." Uh, State, but state is where you qualify for regionals, which enables you to qualify for nationals. And um, I remember they, they, there was talk about, this was like, I remember in, I think it was 72, Kathy Rigby was like, like she makes herself throw up, and she eats all this food, but then she gets it out. And they didn't, ha- in the 70s, they didn't have a word for bulimia then. I think it came later, in the late 70s or something. I just didn't know, but maybe there was, it could be wrong. But anyway, so um, I, I pursued that sport. It was um, ideal for me. It was intense. I'm an intense person. It was extreme. I'm an extreme person. Um, focused. I'm a real focused person. And um, it helped me not to feel my feelings. And it was it was a lot of um, it's a lot of pressure on me because I remember I. I grew up in Beverly Hills. There was the Beverly Hills Post, Beverly Hills Independent, and the Beverly Hills Courier. And those three newspapers were very popular in the 70s. And all three of those wrote articles like, Watch out, Olga Corbett. Here comes me, the next Olympic Like, <laughs> I felt really pressured. I felt like I've got to make the Olympics or I'm just not okay. Um, and... Needless to say, you know, I was champion in California, but I did not make the Olympics, and I just took that and beat myself up with it. I just thought, I'm a loser, I'm not enough, I have no worth, I have no value, I'm not important, I don't matter, and I just, I can't even tell you the feelings that were coming up, because I used the sport to stuff all my emotions down. So then now it's like I don't have that anymore. The feelings started to come up and I didn't know I didn't know what they were. Like I didn't know what, what am I feeling? Is this is this anxiety? You know, is this panic? Is this is this um terror? Is this emptiness? Is this lonely what am I feeling? I didn't even know. And I had another friend I think I do it my friends like this and she would go on these huge binges and back in the 70s, there used to be like a famous Amos in Hollywood, and there was a Piner Chicken. I don't even know if they're around anymore. And, you know, Winchell's and all, you know, we would just eat from city, from, you know, place to place all around the city. And um, two months after I gave up that sport, I gained 45 pounds in those two months. And, um, and I was fat. And my mother was was not real 
What am I say? I don't want to be mean to her. Um, <laughs> she was the nicest woman. She said to me, you have no waste. You're like a sausage. And I was like, what does that even mean? No way. I'm a sausage. What is that? And then my older brother would call me Lardo. My sister Lardo. Look at my sister Lardo. And he'd make fun of me. And um, none of my clothes fit. By this time, I was like 17, um, so I didn't have any, you know, job at 17 and wasn't able to buy any clothes. So I started wearing my brother's clothes, and my mother comes in to me. She says, you can't do that. You cannot wear your brother's clothes. <laughs> I'm thinking, what does she want me to wear? Because none of my clothes fit. So I'm not allowed to wear my brother's clothes, but my clothes don't fit, and she's not willing to buy me any clothes. And what I started doing was I started wearing her trench coat. She had this big, like, I don't know what it was, London Fog or something, raincoat. And I started wearing that coat. And I noticed when I see people from my high school, they were very cool. They were like, wait, weren't you that state champion? How'd you get so fat? You, how'd you get so fat? And I'd be like, I wanted to just smack them in the face. Because how the hell do you think someone gets that fat? They eat, obviously. You don't just wake up one day and you're like 45 pounds heavier in two months. I mean, obviously, I did a lot of eating. And so it really hurt. Um, and what I, what I did was when I'd start seeing people from school, I would hide behind a tree or a telephone pole. Um... Because I didn't want him to comment on my weight. And I felt like if I'm wearing the big trench coat, then nobody could see it. But I have a tendency to gain weight everywhere, so it would be in my face. And, you know, 45 pounds is a lot to gain in two months. Um, so, anyway, fast forward to where my friend Susie, she was not gaining weight, my binge buddy. And... Um, she was thrown up, and I didn't, I didn't, I couldn't do it. Like, she tried to show me, and I was like, I don't get that. I, nothing's coming up with saliva. It's just spit. And, um, how am I doing on time? Okay. Oh, it did stop? Oh, so you're going to, okay. All right, um, do I get, like, a five-minute warning or something? Okay, great. So, um... Where was I? Um, oh, yeah, thank you, thank you. So she was showing me how to do it. I couldn't do it. It was just like saliva. Nothing's coming up. And then I um, I remember one night I was in the middle of a binge. I used to be in, in Westwood as ships back in the 70s. And I remember going there. It was like a 24-hour thing, and you could just stay there. And I was driving around the city just kind of lost. And I would look, like, I would look at the homeless people. And I would identify with them. I'm like, I'm not homeless, but I relate to these, these people that are lost. I, I felt that that emptiness or like that, I don't know what, the soul sickness or just that I, I'm feeling so lost and so alone. And, um, and a lot of times I would like park near homeless people just to like, I kind of felt like, oh, I want to connect with this person because we're the same, you know. And... Um, and then I went into the 7-Eleven that was on Barrington and Wilshire. And I saw, and I, my brother was already into drugs then, you know. And I, I had the kind of mother that didn't want to acknowledge his addiction. Like when he was 13, he started smoking pot. 
then when he was like maybe 16, I think, somewhere around there, I don't know, his friends would come over to the house and they would take the telephone cord, the old phones, and they'd like just do this thing on their arm and then they'd like shoot, and I was freaked out because I was just like little Miss Jim, was like, I'm not doing any kind of drugs. And then I went in, in, we shared a bathroom, I went in his bathroom and I found a syringe and I took it to my mom and I said, look what I just found. And she just, like, did nothing. She was just like, oh, that's, that's your, leave it alone. Don't go in his drawers. And I'm like, wait a minute. There's something wrong with this picture. She should have maybe got him help or something. Um, then maybe he wouldn't have died. I don't know. Um, or maybe that was his path. Who knows? So, um, so there was already the drug use that I would witness from my brother, and I, I could tell what high was. Like, he was always like this. He was always like, the, what? Hi. Yeah, here. What's wrong? And it, it's kind of like a heroin-like type nod thing. And um, so I was at the 7-Eleven, and I see this guy, and he has that look. He has that nod look. He has, like, that glossy eye, like he's not present. He's just, like, in this stupor like I could I could pick out the drug like state and um so I started kind of like I guess talking to him I was hoping to get something because I wanted to to have something to take the edge off so I said what are you high on <laughs> he said I'm high on opium and I went I've never done that one I is, and then I tried to like really get him like to to get into me I said is it is it like pot he said, no, it's not like that. I said, is it, is it like drinking? He said, no, it's not like drinking. And then I was like, well, is, is it like quaaludes? Because there was, you know, quaaludes in the 70s. He said, no, it's not like quaaludes. And I'm like, what is what is it like? And I really wanted to try it is really what I wanted. I just wanted to numb out. Like, I really, what I really wanted, I guess, is I wanted to be dead but alive at the same time. Like, I didn't want to feel, didn't want to die. It's too scared, but I didn't want to feel what I was feeling. So I wanted to be dead and alive at the same time. And food and drugs, alcohol afforded me that luxury. Um, so he turned me on to the opium, and you, it's called Chasing the Dragon. You put on this little tin foil, and you do it. And it made me sick. It got me to throw up. And I was like, yes, this is perfect. Now I don't have to worry about my inability to throw up because this is healthy. Now I got to just smoke that stuff and boom, it comes up. And so there was my gateway into, you know, that, that disorder, that disease. Um, and unfortunately, then he graduated to heroin. So I was like, no more open that. I don't know. But anyway, it's, it's ovaries anonymous. So anyway, um, the first thing I had to do was, oh, and, was I thought that's my uh, solution. This is the way my brain worked. It thought if I drink or do drugs, then those days I don't have to eat any food. I won't eat anything. And I remember my mom saying, I don't think that's such a good idea. And I'm like, well, of course it is. Because if I'm high and I'm feeling good, then I don't need to eat. Because I eat to feel good. And she's like, well, no, you're probably going to still have your fruit problem, but you're going to de- develop a secondary addiction to the drugs and alcohol. And I was like, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. You know, but, of course, she was right when I look back on it now. <laughs> so, but um, so what I had to do was um, my first introduction to 12-step programs was 1984. I was married, my second marriage, 
and my husband, who was Persian, said he didn't understand. He's like, why do you eat all this food? And then like, what, what do you do? You know, he just couldn't get it. And and he was like, I'm going to put you in the hospital, and I'm going to put you in there. And he was like maybe nine years older than me, so I, I kind of like thought it's it's daddy. I got to go in the hospital, so I went in. Not that I wanted to be there, but because my husband made me go in. And I hated it. I didn't want to be there. They brought in OA meetings, these Overeaters Anonymous meetings through panels, H&I. And they started talking about steps, and they started talking about, like, you know, you got to get a sponsor, and you got to do – and I, I wanted no part of it. I just I, – I wasn't done. I didn't want to stop. So I said to myself, I'm not doing any of this. I'm here because my husband's forcing me to be here. And um, when I when I got out, I just went right back to it. Um, and I still tried to use the – oh, and th- th- by this time, I had already stopped – drinking because it was too high calorically and I just switched to drugs because there's no calories and um, so I still had that thinking I still had that like queer mental twist whatever that was like well my brother's really skinny a lot of rock and rollers are really skinny and they all do like drugs they all do so maybe if I do that that's going to be my solution you know, I get off this 45 pounds. So I, that's, you know, another, I guess, motivating factor for me to, you know, want to do the drugs. And um, so the first thing I had to do before I could get absent was I had to get sober. So I got sober and in the beverage program. And when I got sober, I don't know what it is with two months and... 45 pounds, but the, the first 60 days, I took one of those chips, and I was 45 pounds heavier, and my AA sponsor was like, well, don't worry about the weight, you know, the weight will come off, you just need to stay sober, and so I listened to her, and I was like, okay, that's what I'll do, and for God, I, I want to say maybe 16 years of my sobriety, I was still binging and purging on a daily basis, even when my when I was pregnant with my son, my son's almost 19, when I was pregnant with my son, I couldn't stop, I, I just like, in my head, I felt a little bit guilty, like, what if he comes out deformed, he's, he's not, if any of you met him, he's totally fine, he's got a 4.2, plays cello, he's great, but, <laughs> but um, I thought, well, no, you know what? If you throw up, it's kind of like having morning sickness. It's the same thing as morning sickness, what women get when they're pregnant. The only difference here is I'm, I'm inducing it. So that's, that's the only difference. But Because I couldn't stop. I really couldn't stop. And when I was about five years sober, I, um, I was at a meeting, and this woman came up to me, and she said, you're not really sober. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I gave up heroin. She goes, no, no, you're sober off drugs and alcohol, but you use food as a drug. And at first, I didn't want to hear it. I did not want to hear that. And then when I, when I got really rigorously honest, and when I got really still, I went, and I started eating the food. I, I, I just put it first brownie. Ah, I was right with the world. Everything's okay now. <laughs> then I realized it is a drug for me. It checks me out. It numbs me out. It, makes, it, doesn't, it doesn't allow me to be in my body present. It makes me just go somewhere. Like, I'm not even with you like we could be talking and I wouldn't even be listening to you um and it it had a drug-like effect on me so um 
about five years sober, I put myself into a, another hospitalization. I'm from L.A. I went to some place in Chicago because that's where it was. Didn't get abstinent. Um, just couldn't get it. I just couldn't get it. And so I said to God, I said, you know, God, maybe your path for me is that you just want me sober so I don't end up dead like my brother. Maybe you just want me to get off of, you know, the drugs and, and alcohol and you're just going to have me be sober, but you're not going to remove the obsession with the food. Because that's what my experience was. I had the obsession with the drugs and alcohol lifted, but I was still obsessed with food. And, I and you know, when you go to the Amy's, there's, like, cakes and there's cookies and there's the bird. I mean, it's like... I remember just planting myself at the Marina Center at 6.45 in the morning and just shoving in donuts, like a dozen donuts, just eating. And no wonder I gained 45 pounds in two months, you know. Whole cakes and whole peaches, just insane. And um, so I get sober. I, gained the, I, gained, I lose my train of thought, but I don't know where I was. Something about the two, I gained two, in two months I gained the 45 pounds and, um, you know, I, oh, I tried the hospital thing to get absent. I couldn't do it. And I just said, okay, God, maybe I'm supposed to just get absent. You know, and then I remember one of my first uh, OA meetings after that care unit in 84 was, was at Log Cabin. It was 1991 or something. And there was a woman with red hair there, Ray. And she says, I, w- I went in there. I was eating popcorn because I couldn't stop eating. And she says, you can't eat in here. And I said, no, it's air popped. It's, it's, it's that free. <laughs> and she said, no, this is Overeaters Anonymous. You're not allowed to eat in here. And I thought, what is she talking about? Everybody in AA eats. There's the cake. They let you take the cakes home. There's, like, cookies. There's, someone has a cookie commitment. I'm not allowed to eat. I said, it's air pop, you know. And she said, no, you're not allowed to eat in here. And I, I was like, screw you, you know. I, <laughs> I was, like, so defiant. So I was like all right, I'll, I'll show her. I'm, I'm going to go to Pink's. It's not that far from the log cabin. And I'm going to hit, you know, the, the, the Winchell's over there, and there's a Baskin-Robbins not too far. And, and I was just, I'm going to binge at her. I'll show her. <laughs> and it was like, that's my, that was my thinking. Like, I'm going to do that to you, but it's really doing it to me, you know. Um, so how much time do I have now? Let's stop. Just said, yeah. You have 20 minutes. 20 minutes. Is that including questions or no? I'll give you a 10-minute warning. Before, okay. So, um, where is this? So I'm binging at her. I'm binging at you. Everybody, um, everyone pisses me off, so i got to do that. <laughs> um, I guess basically what it was is, like, that the, um, I wanted life to go my way. I wanted you to do what I wanted. I wanted you to sit there, and I wanted you to do that. And you need to cross your arm. You need to do whatever I want. And if only the players will stay put, I will be okay. And if you don't do it the way I want, then I'm not okay. So I was a huge control freak. I think a lot of my control comes from uh, my terror, my fear of not feeling safe. And if I, if I somehow think I can control you or manipulate something, I'm somehow safe when I'm really not. Um, it's just an illusion because I, you know, there's, there could be an earthquake right now and I don't, I don't have any control over it, you know. Um, but it, it gave me that illusion that I felt like somewhat safe. And, and 
it was recently, and when you know, God, so where God asked, and I, I had to go through the steps, and when I, um, you know, went through the steps, I realized, for me, the hardest one is step three because uh, I knew I'm powerless over substances, food. I mean, my life is unmanageable. It's pretty clear. That's like public record, but. Um, <laughs> And, and, and then they tell me, well, if you don't have the power and you truly are admitting to your innermost self that you're powerless, then that means you need to find some power. And then they pointed out to me on page 45, it said, lack of power, that was our dilemma. That's my problem. That's my dilemma. I have to find a power by which we can live. It had to be a power greater than myself, obviously, but where and how are we to find this power? And it says that's what, exactly what this book is about. Its main object is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. So that was hope for me. Now you get to step three, and I had a hard time, because then it said i got to turn my will and my life over to this power, this higher power, this God, whatever, of course, you want to call it, you know, intelligence, creative intelligence running the universe, the powerful wave, whatever, you know, um, is, is puts the moon up at night and takes it down, you know, it's certainly not me, so obviously I'm not, you know, I'm not the one in charge. Whatever makes an embryo become a baby or a little blade of grass that pops through the cement, is there's some force that's doing stuff here, and it's not me. Um... So, the only thing was, I was like, oh, I don't know if I can fully trust this power. And then it, when it gets back in the book before you, you're in your third step, it says, you have to be convinced that any life run on self-will can hardly be a success. And I had a really hard time with that step because I was like, well, no, I, I'm pretty self-sufficient and I'm pretty, you know, I've got, I got a lot of self. <laughs> if I exert myself a little bit here, then things will work out. So what I would do is I would kind of like give this to God. Like, okay, you can have that because I can't really manage this. And I, I'm, I'm in family court 14 years. I don't know what's going to happen there, so I'm going to give that to God. But over here, I'm going to drive and, sh- and manage and manipulate. And i got to do this over here because... I don't know if God can do it, you know, and I, I, I don't, I don't see this God, you know, um, but I will tell you this, I have felt, I feel the presence of God a, a lot of times, I remember when I was newly sober and newly abstinent, I was on my floor in the fetal position in so much pain, not only emotionally, but physically, and I said, God, if you exist, then you need to just heal me now or take me. You just heal me now or you take me because I can't handle this. And I felt like God kind of, I don't, I don't know what it was. It was I don't even want to say God. I, it, there was some sensation that I had that I felt like, you're going to be okay. You're not alone. You're not alone. And... um. And so that was kind of my my connection with God, and and you know when I first did a four step, I had a really hard time with that four step because I couldn't see, I, I could very easily write where you wronged me, where I'm angry and resentful, and at all the institutions and all the people and the things that screwed me over, but I couldn't see like that fourth column. Like I knew I knew what you did, and I knew 
um, what what it hurt in myself. Like it, it affected my self esteem and it affected my personal relations and my social relations, my pocketbook money, whatever. I was in fear. I got all that through the third column, but I couldn't see where's my part. How am I being selfish and self-centered and dishonest? I couldn't see that, you know. Um, and if, here's an example. Like, my parents, they divorced, you know, it's like four, so they're like, I'm thinking, well, how am I being selfish and self-centered about the divorce? I, I want to blame them because they shouldn't have divorced because it broke up the family. And someone pointed out to me um, a few years ago, it's like, well, the fact that you still hang on to it, that resentment, you're being very selfish because you're clinging to it instead of just, like, letting it go um, and knowing it's their life and that was their stuff and it has nothing to do with me. Because it's the fact that I would take it personally. You know, it's kind of like that acronym Q-tip. Quit taking it personally. Why do I have to take everything personally? You know, it has nothing to do with me. Um, so I had to go through – I had to wait for about, I don't know, decades before I could really see my part. <laughs> I really had a hard time with that one. Um, and then six and seven, I remember the very first time doing step six and seven, I didn't feel anything. I really didn't feel anything. It was like, remove, what, I don't even think I have defects of character, so how are you going to take away my selfishness and my dishonesty, my fear? Well, I knew I had fear, but I, I just didn't feel a thing. And, um, you know, that's just my experience. Um, you know, years later, I realized that I am exactly um, what our book talks about on page 62, is selfishness, self-centeredness is the root of our troubles, driven by a hundred forms of fear and self-delusion and self-pity. We step on the toes of our fellows. I, I, that's me. And it says that. It says the, the food, the liquor is but a symptom. We had to get down to the causes and conditions. And at first when I heard that, I was like, what are they talking about? Because the food is my problem. Like, what, what do you mean the food is but a symptom? And it's like, oh, I get it. Food was my solution. Food is my solution. When I'm feeling restless, irritable, and discontent, or if I'm feeling scared or angry or in my case, rageful, lonely, whatever the feeling may be. Um, I had to completely lost my train of thought. What was I just talking about? Um, oh, that, that, that my solution was going to the food. Like that, as soon as I picked up the food, just like picking up a drug... It would, it would take away the fear. It would take away the, the anxiety. It would take away the emptiness, you know, that whatever hole inside. I kept thinking, like, well, once I'm married again, then I'll, then I'll be like, well, no, now I'm married. So, no, still don't fix it. No, once I get my kid, now, nope, still don't fix it. Then I get that great job, the house. Nothing, nothing was fixing it because I found out it's, it's a spiritual malady that I have and a soul sickness, and I, and I need to seek God. Um... And I know if, in tr- if it's true that any life based on self-will can hardly be success, then it means I have to step out of the way. <laughs> That's a really hard one for me to do. Um, but when I do that, my life goes a lot better. It goes a lot better. Um, and I'm, I'm the type that I'm very defiant. I want to fit the square peg into the round hole. It's going gonna, it's gonna to go in there if I just fix it. And 
what I what I discovered is if I stop fighting, like the, like the book says, everyone and everything, I'm I'm at a, a lot more comfortable place. Like, if, what if I just said yes to everything? Like, you're gonna cut me off? Okay, fine. You want to go in front of me? <laughs> Whatever. It's it's like how much value is my serenity? Is is my serenity worth a million dollars? I mean, I today for me, I I value having. Yeah, that calm and peace and the ease and comfort. I I want to be at, at peace. I don't want to be fighting. I I I fought 14 years in family law court. That's a lot of time to be in there. Finally, did get sole custody. Thank God. But um, <laughs> it, you know, I don't want to fight anymore. I just want to be a worker among workers. Live that sense. So do we now? We open it up for questions. Correct? Is that how it works? Okay, um, who wants to ask any questions? And then I repeat the question, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, the question was, what does my uh, program look like today? What is my food? Do I commit my food? What is the action plan? Is, is that correct? Um, I, I, I've never committed food for, because I am a... Um, I have an obsessive mind that I will obsess on anything. So... If I were to have my food written down or committed or, like, I don't know, hear people, like, call it in or email it, it would just be another distraction for me. It would just be another thing to obsess on because it's not, for me, it's not about the food. It's about a symptom. So I can't call it in. I can't focus on it. I can't write it down. I can't make make it about the food because that's a diet for me. That's, like, now I'm focusing on... The symptom. I want to get to the root. So I kind of just do what I call intuitive eating. And that's where I take, like, I try to tune in my body. I take a breath. And I try to feel like, am I physiologically hungry or am I emotionally hungry? Like, am I upset? And I want to eat because I want to feel better and soothe myself? Or is it really because I really am hungry? And I, I, that's pretty much what I try to do. Um, did that answer your question? Um, is that your only thing that you do? What, what, do, you, what do you do, you know, everything that you do? Oh, everything I do. Because uh, I thought you said call and food. Okay, let me think. Oh, what, everything I do. I go to meetings. I'm sponsored. I do sponsoring. Um, I always am of service. Like, I never decline in OA requests, um, and I pray, I meditate. It took me probably, I want to say, a good 10 years sober before I could even meditate. I couldn't even sit sit still. I couldn't, I just couldn't. Like, when I, yeah. <laughs> um, I read literature. I used to read every day. I don't do that as much. Probably need to do that again. Um... And I, I don't, I hate writing, really. I really do. But I, I will do writing from time to time. Um, 
And, you know, God is, like, portable. So, like, when I was in court and I had to represent myself, I was terrified to go against the attorney. And I just brought, I said, okay, God, go in the courtroom before me and speak through me, you know. And I, I try to, you know, try to connect with God. And, and there's times where I really feel a strong connection with God. And there's other times when I don't. It's just like, where are you? Like, where is it? It's gone, you know. Does that answer your question? I'll ask you afterwards. Okay. Okay. Alright, the question was, I said that the food was the solution and not the problem, and how did I find the... What the how did I figure out what the actual problem was? How did I figure out what the actual problem was and the healthier solution? Um... Well, when I went through the steps and I got to that page 64, at the very top, it does say the liquor or the food. In our case, the food is but a symptom. We had to get down to the causes and conditions. Therefore, we started to enforce that inventory, you know. So I had to do that and realize um, that top of page 62 tells me that's my problem. I had a sponsor say, go to page 62, which I did, circle that page, and write at the very top, this is my problem. And so, um, and that's the page that says selfishness, self-centeredness, the root of, you know, I mean, when I want to go eat, it's all about self. Like, I just want to check out. I don't want to interact with you. I don't want to be of service. I don't want to, you know, it's all about self. And so, I have to do the opposite, you know, like they say, contrary action. So when I don't want to go to a meeting, I go to a meeting. If I don't want to work with a newcomer, I go to work with a newcomer. If I don't want to speak, I, you know, I, I just do the opposite, you know. I just, I'll do exactly what the opposite of my, what my head's telling me, you know. You want to eat a whole cake and then order pizza? No, but okay, you got to do the opposite. Because <laughs> I used to listen to this. This would be my, the main problem centers in, in the compulsory reader's mind. This was my main problem. So I had to change my thinking. My thinking is a little, like what kind of thinking says, oh, I know the solution to losing weight is become a hammock, then you don't have to eat. Like that's not, that's not a good solution, you know? So that, that's my thinking. Yeah, um, you're welcome. Anyone else? How did your family grow with the cause of Oh, and the question was, how did my family growing up cause some of the symptoms? Is that accurate? Um, I don't know if it did. I mean, I want to blame them because I don't always like taking responsibility for my behavior and my actions. Um, I guess the, what I could probably accurately say would be my father was a compulsive overeater he died very young at 66 and he had cancer even after giving him radiation he was over 300 pounds when he died um and my mom was like a it was she's 87 now but she's she's got issues with food like i would watch her when i was a teenager and she'd she'd come home from work and she'd be all stressed out why are the dishes in the sink why did you kiss me the dishes and she'd be screaming and raging and then she to decompress to get like the <sighs> that, that, you know, her anxiety 
down. She'd sit in front of the TV and she'd just eat like a half a gallon of ice cream in one sitting or, or bo- polish off a box of weekends or Triscuits or a pound of seized candy. But then I noticed the next day, I'd watch her and I'd look and I'd see, ooh, the next day she hardly ate anything. She's like kind of restricting. So there was some weird stuff with food there. And I, and I, I don't know if that contributed to it or not. I really don't. Because I, you know, my, my brother and I both went into drugs and neither of my parents did drugs or drank really. So it's like, I don't know if that really is a contributing factor. I really don't know. So you're welcome. Mm, that's a good question. The question was, I, and I'm paraphrasing because I might not remember exactly, uh, I mentioned the difference between emotional hunger and physical, physical hunger, the physiological one. And when, I know, when I'm able to recognize and identify the fact that it is actually just emotional, what do I do? <laughs> um, that is such a good question because sometimes I don't always do the right thing as far as self-care. There's sometimes where I want to eat that and, and I end up eating it. Um, what, I, what I realize is that I'm not perfect, you know. I'm a human being, not a human doing. And I have to just, like, be gentle with myself and, and be like, oh, okay, so you have that. Because I used to, I used to make food bad like certain foods were good you can eat that but you can't eat this this is bad so don't eat that and um and I had to I have to just let it be like it's okay you're not gonna you're not gonna do this perfectly you know so I mean and that this is one you, you can't do perfectly because I mean you don't have to pick up a drink or a drug but you do gotta eat you know you gotta feed that tiger three times a day so for me it's a lot harder Welcome.